I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 113 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. As promised, I thought I'd dedicate this unusual podcast to the golfers. A room in my house that kicked off rather modestly roughly 14 years ago and gradually grew into its small museum. This podcast was fueled by you, the listener, and to be honest, I have no idea if it will work or if it'll fail, but let's dive in and find out. The Golfus is my bat cave, my fortress of solitude, my oval office, and home to 80% of my podcast recordings. I'm sitting here in my Golfus today, surrounded by my love of history. There are one-of-a-kind golf antiquities and yet they're simple little reminders of some of my podcasts that I've recorded over the last five years. It's a place that brings me in an infinite amount of happiness and satisfaction. Without further ado, welcome to the Golfus. Before we dive into viewer questions, uh, I thought I'd go into kind of what you see when you walk into the Golfus for the first time. So I have a set of double doors that front the Golfus. And I think the first thing people notice when they walk in outside of the fairly large desk and leather chair in the background, uh, on the corner of that desk, I've been lucky enough to have a U.S. Open trophy and a Wanamaker trophy, which is the trophy for the PGA Championship. But I think the one thing that really grabs people's eye, if I were to guess, would be the Marion Wicker basket, probably because it sits so high in the room. Uh, sorry if my audio is going to go up and down because I'm kind of churning my head back and forth as I look through one of the items. So you come in and the first thing you see is you know this Marion Wicker basket. Maybe your eyes are drawn to the silver on the desk. Hopefully the room has been picked up a little bit more than it is today. And you look to your left and it's, I don't know if it's my favorite wall in the golfist, but it's pretty close. And that's the smart wall. It's filled with the artwork of John Smart, who painted the golf courses of the British Isles in the 1880s. And that collection's very much linear. Uh, what I mean by that is there is a sense of pattern uh, that is straight lines on that collection. And that's very purposefully done. And then when you look at the main wall, it's more random. And I think the original idea was to have you know, the birth of golf kind of be front and center there, but it's really morphed over time because I have uh, some items that I'll dive into that are much more recent from the 1930s behind me. And then as you look into the far right corner, you see my homage to Oakmont. So on the bottom of that wall, we have HC phones. Uh, It is a print of a portrait that hangs in the Oakmont clubhouse. And this one is actually signed by HC himself, the founder of Oakmont. Slightly above that, we have a Pietzger photograph, a large Pietzger photograph of his son, W.C. Phones, who won the U.S. Amateur in 1910. And then we have some vintage images, photographs, and a print of Oakmont from its earlier days. Then as you swivel around the room, you have my Hagen, Bobby Jones, Harry Varden wall. And then and then finally, the fourth wall, uh, which is kind of a slight homage or a slight celebration of Musabra. And on there, there is a photogravure of Willie Park Sr. and an oil painting of Willie Park Sr.'s famous marathon match with old Tom Morris at Musabra. So just giving you a kind of glimpse around the office and amongst that, we have you know clubs that are 100 to 200 years old, kind of wrapped around in between paintings. There are different items on the desk and there's like little items in the corner that you may not pick up if you were to visit first time. So hopefully that gives you a little visual of what you'd look at when you walk into the golfist, just to give you an idea. And let's just dive into 
some questions from um, some of our listeners. So this is from Chuck X on Twitter. Chuck's question is, how did you get interested in golf? And how did you get interested in golf course architecture? Uh, It's a great question. Uh, I started to play golf really late in life. I credit me playing golf or me picking up the game to two people. Uh, The first one, importantly, is my brother, Kevin Lewis. He's on Twitter. He's known as Lou Thunder on Twitter. And Kevin bought me my first set of clubs uh, when I was very late in my 20s. I think it was like I was either 28 or 29 years old. I remember being Cleveland's, but I don't remember the brand. And the other person was, without a doubt, Tiger Woods. Uh, And the excitement he brought to the game in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So kudos to Kevin for getting me into this addiction. Uh, I could also probably blame my wife, too, uh, if if there's a sense of blame to be given. And that is introduce me to her family of golfers. And so it was the Tully family of Rockford, Illinois, that I played with, like, I don't know, we were dating, I think, at the first time I played with them. They beat me so bad that I decided that, you know, I was either going to play this game well or give it up because I wasn't going to be embarrassed for the rest of my life of being married to my wife. So um, I chose to get good at it. And with that, everything kind of followed in suit. Uh, As for golf course architecture, I came to that as late as well. I think like many... I had an appreciation for good golf courses. Uh, The first one I played 15 years ago was Pebble Beach. Uh, But I'll credit a couple of people here too. uh, John Ostrab of Tampa and Robbie and Adam Hoffman. Uh, John introduced me to Robbie and Adam, and they've been good friends of mine ever since. And these three golfers, indirectly or directly, introduced me to some of the best golf courses in this country. And something clicked. And quite frankly, I've been obsessed ever since. You know, and then there's this connection to history. Golf courses are the living embodiment of golf history, in my mind anyway. They shape every memory we have of this game. They are the stage, the scene, and the theater on which this great story plays out. I honestly don't know how every golfer isn't fascinated with golf course architecture, and you don't have to be an expert to be fascinated by it. I mean, you can just think about what are the best holes you've ever played? And I think that's one of the cool connections to this game is it's been said before. It doesn't have the exact same dimensions as a lot of other sports, like a tennis court's a certain size. The net's a certain height. The basketball hoop is 10 feet high. Um, a football field is, you know, from, from end zone to end zone is a hundred yards. And here we have, you know, this simple outdoor game that changes with elements and the movement of land. So anyway, that's my answer, Chuck. I hope you liked it. Um, I'm going to go into the pond is good for you on Instagram. Did your interest in hickory golf get you into golf history or the other way around? It's a great question. And I don't know the answer to it. Um, I've always loved history. So I, I loved it in high school. I probably wasn't the best student in high school, to be quite frank, but I always loved it. Uh, I haven't put too much thought into what came first, the chicken or the egg here. Uh, but I've always been fascinated by history. I got into golf kind of late in my life, like I mentioned just a minute ago. And the history of our game just kind of got picked up. You know, I was playing golf before I started playing hickory golf, which is about late 2007. And I've told this story before. Um, I have some people to thank here. Bill Reed, John Austin, Russ Fisher, uh, all in who live in the Des Moines area or used to. And then the Hickory Tiger, Randy Jensen. Advice from these guys in my insistent questions and answers they gave me on clubs, books, societies to join. This show, uh, the society, this golfers around me was essentially built upon their shoulders and advice. And, you know, the answer to your question is, you know, which came first? I, I played golf probably before I really dove into the golf history I was probably diving into golf history about the same time that I got interested in hickory golf. And the two of them seemed to mix and match because I guess my thought process was, how can I ever speak to how good of a player Bobby Jones was if I've never played hickory shafted clubs? Um, I think some of the people on this that are listening know this, but I really went down a rabbit hole and... uh, 
I decided to figure out, you know, like how good was, you know, Harry Varden or old Tom Morris or Willie Park Jr. And the only way to do that was to start playing gutta percha golf, which is not many people play in this country. And that's, you know, hickory on steroids. If there was an opposite of steroids, I don't know what that would be, but uh, on cheesecake, perhaps. Um, And that's playing with a gutta percha ball and clubs from the 1800s. And it, if I were to tell you how different it is, I would, I would give you this. If you play hickory shafted golf, uh, hickory golf, if you play hickory golf, which is, let's call it 1920s golf to the modern game. So let's call it 100 years, 1920 to 2020. There's a difference, but it's still golf, right? There's a bigger difference between 1899 golf and 1905 golf than there is between 1920 and 2020. Like that 10-year period is so different than comparing the hickory game to how the game is played today. So distance was huge. I mean, we, we talk about distance today. Obviously, the USGA and RNA are rolling back the golf ball. Um, fascinating time in our golf history. Uh, but back then, you know, in, a, in the place of maybe five years, everybody, I mean, everybody picked up 40, 50 yards off the tee moving to this Haskell ball the wound ball. And, you know, we talk about the Pro V1 and all the changes to golf. There's never been, outside of an economical standpoint, there's never been a more transformative technology in this game than the Haskell ball. It changed the way golf is played. And quite frankly, it's how we play golf today. So long answer to that short question. Uh, John Morton has a question. It's one of a very good question because it hits to how this all started. He asked, uh, what is the earliest core item you remember acquiring? And upon holding it in your hands, help cement your desire to collect more. One of the really cool things, I've had a, a lot of pretty cool items come and go out of this office, but the one thing that's been fairly constant is a piece of artwork that hangs on my right shoulder. So it's very purposeful that it sits in a place in the golf that if I'm sitting at my desk, it's always there. I mean, there's items behind me that are, are core uh, antiquities, let's say. But, you know, if I'm sitting here doing work, I don't see them unless I turn around. So it was very important me to have this work to my right as a reminder of how I got here. And that is John Smart's 1885 full-size printing of In Pandy Play Two More. This piece in my collection is really important for a lot of reasons. So uh, I acquired it in 2008, and that's important too. In 2008, it was my dad's 65th birthday, and for his 65th birthday, I took him on a golf trip to Scotland. And so we played, you know, not all of the great courses, but a lot of them. And one of the critical courses that I really wanted to play was um, Musselboro Lynx, the original old Musselboro Lynx. And we were playing with, um, you know, a fellow Scott, uh, um, a Musselboro man. And, you know, it's nine hole course. It held the open championship six times. Uh, Five open champions came from the links of Musselboro, which is remarkable, really. It's one of the hubs of golf history, really. And uh, we're playing with... We didn't know this at the time, but we were playing with either the secretary or former secretary of the club. And if you're here in the United States and you don't know secretary, it's kind of like the president of the club. It's, you know, the, you know, the person who's leading the club at that time. And boy, I got to be careful here. Um, He was sharing some of the history and I I mean, I, I don't think I corrected him, but I was just maybe you know, dove in a little bit of what I knew about Musselbrook because I'd done a lot of research prior to getting there. And he took it in the right way. And he invited me into their clubhouse, which is the uh, Musselbrook Old Course Golf uh, Clubhouse. We're sitting in there having a pint, um, talking about golf, talking about golf history. It's, you know, just me and my dad just hanging out. I think we're like day two of this trip. Uh, I think we were heading to Presswick the next day and then maybe St. Andrews after that. And I was struck by this painting that hung on the walls. 
And it's this painting over my shoulder here of a bunker that no longer exists at Musselbury, to be quite frank. And I inquired about it. I just said, you know, can you tell me a little history about that painting that hangs on your wall? And this, you know, I don't think they knew. The person was there, didn't know that it was John Smart per se, but it was of Musselbury in the 1880s. It's of this bunker called Pandemonium Short. Uh, It's called Pandy. And it was so difficult that hence the name of the painting in Pandy, play two more. And it shows Musabra, or at least a Musabra that exists back then that doesn't exist today. So over the next, you know, hundred and some years, uh, I think through coal mining, but the, the entrails, if you will, of coal mining, they filled in the firth. And so when you look at this painting, you see this beautiful firth, you see, you know, golfers on the links in the distance playing. And if you were to be on that exact spot today, you wouldn't even see the water. It's really remarkable how much this landscape has changed. And so uh, I asked, you know, how I could acquire this, and they pointed me to the direction of now past uh, collector and museum owner and curator, uh, Archie Baird. And we went to go see Archie, and he happened to have one of these amazing large prints, and it became the first item of what would become the Golfus. And in it is framed an autograph by Willie Park Jr., who's obviously a Musabra man. And it says, compliments of Willie Park. And then here's this beautiful in Pandy play two more. So on this full smart wall of these 1880, 1890 prints of John Smart's work, in the center of that wall sits... Uh, in Pandy play two more in full size. And it's a beautiful reminder, not only of that trip with my dad uh, in, on his 65th birthday, but that moment, I think, cemented my love for golf art and historical, you know, antiquities of golf artwork. And if you look around the golfers today, you'll see a lot of golf art. And I think it all starts with the appreciation of the beauty of that painting. And I'll get into it a little bit more in another question, but um, John, that's certainly it. I think as soon as I had that, it definitely set the the tone for the golfers. And I, I'll probably get into this a little bit. I mean, there are a lot of golf collections that are filled with books. I have a lot of books. Weirdly enough, they're all on the ground. They're inside this desk, like the desk is packed up. I have filing cabinets in the corners that don't have paperwork. They're filled with books. But I try to keep the walls for art because I I want a little bit of a museum feel when you walk into this, or maybe an art museum feel when you walk into uh, the golfers. Let's get into the next question here. Um, Before I do, I was just going to say, I I think this is a great question um, because it's important you know that not everything in this room is worth money. And I thought this is a great question to dive into items within the golfers that aren't expensive. The question comes from Chuck X on Twitter. He says, uh, I believe you have glass containers of sand from bunkers. What's your most prized bunker sand? Um, Yeah, I do. It's one of the weirder things in this collection. I call it my golf DNA collection because, I don't know, I feel like the makeup of any golf course or most golf courses is the hazards that make them. And inside most of those hazards are sand. So I don't know. I kind of connected that to DNA. So anyway, um, I can't tell you all probably the coolest bit of sand that's in there, but I'll share some of my favorites. One of the coolest, I think, is obviously from Hell Bunker in St. Andrews. And again, um, I have bunker sand from, I believe, Musabra, uh, Prestwick, um, Muirfield, uh, obviously the old course. And all of those were taken when I was on that trip with my dad. So in other words, it kind of connects back to, weirdly enough, uh, the in Pandy, you know, play two more, this trip to Scotland with my dad that just means a lot to me and has meant a lot to me since, you know, we took that trip. So that's really cool. You know, I think I, there's a couple others that I think are really neat that are non-traditional. So I have some sand from a sand dune where maybe approximately the Lido's ocean hole once sat. And I have a a golf ball that is stamped with the logo, the original logo of the Lido on this vase of jar with, you know, this Lido sand that, you know, hopefully some of that sand from that marvelous hole is still in there. 
Um, I also have, let's see, I have sand from, I think probably the other really cool one that comes out outside of like Pine Valley and some of these great courses that you know is I have sand from a bunker from Oakhurst Lynx, which is really rocky sand. Um, Oakhurst Lynx is one of the oldest golf courses in the United States. Uh, It's currently closed, unfortunately. It closed due to a flood about a decade ago. It was founded in 1884. used to be home to the National Hickory Championship that Pete Georgie throws. And I've been told that the Green Buyer is going to open up that course again someday. I surely hope they do. But, um, you know, it's just really cool. It's, um, It's a nice little reminder of playing in those tournaments with clubs from the 1800s. And... You know, now the course is kind of closed. I also have a trash bucket over here, by the way. I went out to explore the links of Oakhurst Links, like, was that two years ago, three years, maybe during the pandemic? And they used to store the sand in these green buckets, and there was one abandoned and kind of rusting. And I picked it up, took it with me, and it is my, I have a little liner in it. It's my little trash can. So I have a trash can for Oakhurst Links, which is also a nice little. I guess it was free, but it's not an expensive artifact from history. We'll go to a college golf book on Twitter. What items didn't make the golfers? Oh, there's a long list there. Um, I've passed on more than a couple of items, uh, but the worst pass in the history of the golfers was turning down the opportunity to acquire a full set of Ben Hogan's personal clubs. That included one of his one irons. So, I mean, I don't know. It was like 15 years ago. It came into Randy Jensen's shop, the Hickory Tiger in Omaha. I happened to be there. It was a very reasonable price, a very reasonable ask for these clubs. I held them in my hands. I took a couple swings of the one iron, um, and I nearly pulled the trigger. Um, I almost bought them. And it was an unbelievable deal. I can't tell you. And your next follow-up question is, why didn't I buy them? But I'll just give you a, a heads up. I believe these irons came up for sale, I don't know, a couple years ago, and they went for like $350,000. So hindsight being 2020, I mean, it'd be nice to have $350,000. But it the question, why didn't I buy them? And it's an important question. I think if you're starting a collection or you're building a golfist, eventually you may decide that you want to have a theme. And a theme, in my opinion, allows you to make executive decisions that will save you time, money, and allow you to build a cohesive collection that tells a cohesive story. That's important for me. I think when you look at the golfist walls, you know, I would like somebody to walk in here that knows a little bit about golf history and look at these items that we have in here. And hopefully they take a little bit of the story of golf history with them. The other thing about not chasing everything that is important is, you know, unless you have infinitely deep pockets in a warehouse, um, it's, you just can't, like you have to draw the line. So walking away from Ben Hogan's iron set was probably the second toughest decision I've ever had to make. And while I certainly lost a financial gain, um, of, you know, maybe $350,000, I would argue that it probably saved me time, effort, money of you know, having one item in my collection that doesn't make sense. So I have had irons that were owned by JFK. I have had George Herbert Walker's uh, presidential golf bag. Um, I've had items like that where I thought I was going to go down this rabbit hole of presidential golf. And ultimately, I think the only thing I have left from that collection is Eisenhower's golf ball when he was a five-star general. It was found under the Eisenhower tree uh, when it was lost in that winter storm. So anyway, oh, I walked away from it. Could have had Ben Hogan's irons. I know all the Ben Hogan folks out there are gasping, but uh, yeah, it was tough. So let's go to the next question. College golf book on Twitter. What's missing from your collection? And now this falls into a, a series of questions I received, like outside of your major championship trophies or getting a green jacket, what's the one thing you wish you had in the golfers? Uh, what's the Holy Grail? And that's man of golf. 72 asked that question. A couple of you asked questions like that. I would say there's two items that I've been searching for over the last two decades. The first one I'm very vocal about, I think on Twitter, uh, I would very much like to have an original champions claret jug. 
Um, I'll tell you right now, if and when that day ever comes, I will most likely break down in tears. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I am ever in the presence of the actual claret jug and hold it with these two hands, I have zero doubt that I'll cry. That's how emotional that would be to me. I think it is, it's not the alpha and omega of golf, but it is kind of the alpha and omega of our, I don't know, our our love for this game is the major championships. Uh, We, we mark time by the, the winners of major championships, these four majors. And I think holding the claret jug in my hand would be an experience unlike any other. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the golfist currently has a U.S. Open trophy and a Wanamaker trophy. Uh, Claret Jug would be the anchor of my entire collection. I think I'm not saying it would be more valuable to me. I'm not talking, you know, talking intrinsically versus uh, money than perhaps anything in this collection. Uh, The second item that I need to have at some point is an Allen Robertson feathery ball. Uh, there were two great feathery ball makers in my book, and that's Gourlay of Musabra and Alan Robertson. Gourlay's genius of making featheries was said to be outmatched. Uh, on paper, if you're a collector, you know, if you wanted to get a feathery, I would argue it's probably a Gourlay. But for me, it's Alan. And, and I say Alan because that's what's stamped on those balls, not Alan Robertson or Robertson. It's just stamped simply Alan. And... I'll give you my reasoning. I probably shouldn't, but I'll give you my reasoning. Um, in Alan Robertson's shop in St. Andrews, there were three gentlemen who made feathery balls, and two of them were the greatest golfers that ever lived. So in my mind, or two of them, and that's Alan Robertson and old Tom Morris. So in my mind, I feel like you have you know, a 66% chance of holding a feathery ball that was made by one of the two greatest golfers that ever lived. So Alan Robertson, if you haven't heard it before on this podcast or on Twitter, never lost a golf match of consequence uh, in his life. He died in 1859 and he could very well be credited for the start of the open championship because here was this gentleman who was never beaten, never conquered. He was considered to be the greatest golfer in the world. And in his passing, there was a question who will fill his shoes? And some thought old Tom Morris and some thought this crazy upstart Musabra Willie Park. And they held a tournament called the Open to figure out who owns that title, who will own it for a year, the champion golfer of the year. That's why they say that. So uh, Alan and old Tom uh, making featheries in that shop has always been intriguing to me. All right, let's go to the next one. Jim Ken uh, asks, What's your best advice for building a collection? Um, Same question for the golfists, he says. Hmm. Well, uh, the two questions for me are the same. Uh, Same answer. And what I mean by that is they won't have to be the same for everyone. But my my best advice that I can give anyone that's building a golf collection, I'll give you a few. Uh, Number one, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make bad deals that lose money. So... If money is the only thing motivating you, I probably suggest a different hobby because you're going to lose some money on the front end. And quite frankly, if you're buying a club for $150, it might be worth $170 10 years from now. These things go up and down in value. If you're really in it to make money, unfortunately, the only way to do that in my mind is to buy really, really rare, really, really expensive antiquities. Uh, great examples would be Tiger Woods's clubs over the last couple of years have gone up in value. I don't know, 50%. Uh, it's not the oldest, uh, the, uh, you know, the oldest of antiquities, but you know, these are items that sell now for a million dollars. So I would say part of my advice would be, you know, collect it because you want to collect it, collect it because you love the history of the game, collect it that you want to tell a story, find good reasons to collect rather than monetary gains. Not to say there aren't any, but just if making money is important to you, there are other ways to make investments. Number two, do your research. Uh, Research can save you time, trouble, money, but great research. Uh, You can seemingly take advantage of an item and make it priceless. I'll give you an example. 
I came across one of the anchors of the Golfus uh, about a decade ago, and it was a life-size uh, sketch of an older Willie Park senior. And it's fr- basically like a bus, like, you know, from his shoulders to his head. And while the image was unique, it was also a bit expensive. So I decided to do some research. So here I had this item that I'd never seen before. I, quite, I have yet to see another one quite like it. And there are only a few clues of the item. And one of them is, you know, just on his right chest, it says Willie Park Sr. Open Champion. It lists the four years that he won the Open. And then it had these initials, and they were J-A-T-B. So I just dug into artists. And I don't know, luck, chance, whatever you want to call it. The artist is John A.T. Bonner. And it's semi-important because what occurred was Willie Park Jr., who won two Open Championships, his father won four, the paintings of number four, commissioned uh, John A.T. Bonner to create this large portrait of his father, four-time Open champion. And, you know, as a, a, a thank you and as a, you know, commemorative of the amazing accomplishments of this institution of golf history, uh, the first open champion, the four-time open champion, the hero of Musabra. And that painting now hangs in the RNA, in the clubhouse of the RNA. So this photogravure is actually one of the early sketches John A.T. Bonner made of Willie Park to make that painting. So if you actually hold up this photogravure to the painting, um, while in the painting, um, Willie Park Sr. is wearing a hat, here he is not. Everything about him, I mean, from his eyes to the shape of his beard, not even the beard, but like, you know, how the, the hairs are, you know, the hair on the beard is not matched up or equal um, to the clothing. It, it is an exact match to that painting outside of Willie Park Sr. wearing a hat. So here residing in the golfus is you know this really cool memento <laughs> again going back to my trip to Scotland with my dad of a son's admiration of his father that was commissioned by a two-time open championship winner for his dad who was a four-time open championship winner and it started with the piece that sits in front of me in this golfus so I, if I just bought the item, or maybe I wouldn't have bought the item, but knowing the research and knowing behind what this item is, what it meant, and its history, to me, took this from an item that cost a couple thousand dollars to something in my mind that is relatively priceless. So there you go. That's what research can do. It can also keep you from losing a lot of money. Um, if you buy something, it turns out to be a replica or a reprint or something like that. It's very critical that you take the time to do your research. Uh, if you're looking to not lose money going into uh, man of golf 72, how did I get the buy-in from my wife to dedicate a room to a semi costly hobby? That's a great question. I, I don't know if I really got buy-in. I mean, the the beauty is when I started this collection, um, I was a medical sales rep and I had to work out of the house. So in working out of the house, I needed a, an office. And so it really came down to just me decorating my office. I mean, it really, I didn't have to get permission. Now, expansion, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, has been a different story. I've tried to expand the golfers <laughs> into the, I don't know, golf house, maybe. All right. I think the USGA took that name. But um, I, we've, I've been conquered many times of those battles from the wife of saying, no, you're not expanding. I think I have a slight reprieve outflanking her perhaps, but I will be expanding some of my modern artwork, modern things into our workout room, which is really well lit, which does not work for antique art because you don't want the ink or the paint to um, dissipate over time. So we're using, you know, modern representations of golf history in that room so that when I work out, I'm still going to be surrounded by golf history. So do your research. Let's see. We have Mana Golf 72 again asks, what is my favorite 
course-related item? That's a tough one. So I have a lot of things, right? I have a lot of paintings of golf courses and events. I'm going to come down to one. And again, it's kind of a weird sentimental thing, although it's not directly connected to the sentiment itself. But I happen to own one of the world's oldest scorecards from Leith Links, which is from June 3rd, 1820. It's behind me in the golfist, uh, John Cundell, who wrote the second ever book on the rules of golf for the Thistle Golf Club, was the holder of this scorecard. And there's a lot of things I like about it. First of all, I mean, it's small. It doesn't take up a lot of room in the in the office. One of the really cool things is he shot an 81 at Leith Links. So Leith Links was a five-hole course. To play it, you'd play it twice. You'd play 10 holes. So he averaged 8.1 strokes per hole. And right under the signing of his name, he wrote disgraceful. And so, I, listen, I love the fact that, you know, looking back at, you know, 200 and what is that? 200 and some years, 202 years, 203 years soon that 203 years soon to be 204. Sorry. That, you know, golfers pretty much are the same type of people. Like, you, you know, if you go out with your buddy and you shoot 104, you might write disgraceful on your scorecard if you collect scorecards. So we have, John Kendall's thoughts on what a bad round was and, you know, 1820 when they're playing a feathery ball, ball feather stuck with goose feathers. It says disgraceful. But the real reason I find sentimental value there is not because I'm related to John Kendall, weirdly enough, but it's dated June 3rd, 1820. And my son was born on June 3rd. So on my son's birthday of 2020, that scorecard turned 200 years old. And I just thought that was one of the coolest things in the golfers. So definitely tied to that little item. You also asked the question, favorite player related item. That one could be tougher, but I mean, I, I have some items from the 1800s that were owned or built by famous, you know, major champions, but I'm going to settle, not a hard settle, by the way, I own, uh, where the golfers has, uh, Bobby Jones's personal mashing niblick from his career. I mean, from his, prime. Uh, it was likely made somewhere between 1926 and 1929, right in the middle of his career. It's also interesting because it tells a little bit of a story about Bob Jones. I, I've always guessed, I've only, I've owned two of these clubs, by the way. I own a Spade Mashy of Bobby Jones's as well. But I, what I love about this club is it's a Mashy Niblick. If you've ever read Down the Fairway, you would know that Bobby Jones's least favorite club in the world was a mashy niblick. So here I have this mashy niblick in my collection. It's like in pretty good shape. And I can just imagine him, you know, hopefully maybe taking it to a major and, you know, flubbing a couple shots. And maybe he's got like 10 mashy nibblicks hanging around because he could just want to find the right one. Or maybe this was the right one. Who knows? Although it's not in the Graham Slam collection that resides at Augusta National. So we can assume it wasn't his favorite. So anyway, I, I don't know. I love that because I'm a big fan of Bobby Jones. If you're a Hickory golfer, you know, he's kind of your patron saint, perhaps him and Walter Hagen of Hickory golf. And here behind me in the golf office, I have one of his clubs. So that one's pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Next question. How old is too young for something to be considered a piece of golf history? Um, for me, that's probably a personal question, but, um, I'd answer it differently for me. And I think it's probably differently in each person. For me, there's no hard and fast line. If it's a, you know, hickory shafted era, that's clearly something I want. Um, but you know, what's golf history. I mean, it's anything that's already happened really. I mean, if you were to be blunt about it, there are, you know, tiger woods wins the PNC and throws a ball up in the air and somebody grabs it. That's a piece of golf history. So I don't think there's, anything that's too young, because if it existed, it's golf history. Um, to reside in this golfus, there are some items that are in here that either represent or, you know, depict things that happened after the Hickory era, but there's not many. So for me, I am a lover of the Hickory era. I am really a connoisseur, if you will, of pre-1900 golf. I think that is the most romanticized version of golf, which, you know, appeals to me. 
Let's see. Um, next question. Golf's future at golf's future. The next question, any non golf related items in the golf I'm going to combine this with uh, a Twitter question by golf's future. What's with the sword? <laughs> so if you ever see photos of my, in my golf I have a, I, I wouldn't call it a sword, but it's a Japanese bayonet from world war two that sits on my desk. Um, that we collected from my wife's grandfather's home when he passed away uh, during and this, he collected during his time in World War II. Uh, the bayonet serves me today as a letter and box opener and uh, potentially to scare off potential male suitors for my daughters. So that's the only reason it's in here. I, I use it to open every box that I get on most of the letters. It's still fairly sharp. Uh, it's a little bit of history. It's definitely not golf history, but um, that's why it sits here. Next question. I don't have a name for who sent this, so I apologize. What is the best way for someone to start a collection on their own? I would say most collectors, including myself, go into collecting with no plan, and they just go out and buy cool stuff. Uh, You do this until you get enough items and you realize that it doesn't make any sense, or like for me, it lacks focus. The hardest thing for me as a collector of antiquities is to have a plan and stick to it. And, you know, it takes a discipline. It takes a lot to walk away from an antiquity or something that is historically compelling. Again, I wanted to have Ben Hogan's personally used golf clubs. I had the funds to acquire them and I debated it and ultimately determined it didn't make sense. So I, I think, you know, if I had to do it all again, I would probably, you know, put a lot more time into what I wanted to build. It took me almost 20 years to get to where I am now. But if I had more direction on the in the early days, it would probably help. Uh, the other thing I think, you know, join a golf collecting society. The Golf Heritage Society is a great one here in the United States. The British Golf Collector Society is another one overseas. And here you're kind of mixed and matched with like-minded people that you know, you can get advice from like, Hey, I'm looking to acquire this club. What do you think it's worth? You know, am I getting ripped off? Should I make this trade? Um, how do I get this? How do I build a collection that it consists of this? And you can talk to people who have already had your experience, who have gone through this 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they can give you, you know, compelling reasons to do one thing or the other or help you out. So that's probably the easiest thing to do is connect with people. Ask me questions. I mean, get on Twitter, get on Facebook. Ask me a question. What do you think this is worth? A couple of you folks already do it. Shoot me an email and say, hey, I've got the chance to buy this for a hundred bucks. What do you think? And 50% of the time, it seems that it's a good idea. And 50% of the time I'm saying it's worth 10 bucks. So it's definitely worth asking the questions. Uh, let's see. Next question. Mike MC6, uh, I believe from Twitter. What is the biggest mistake you have ever made with a golfist. That's a doozy. Uh, everyone makes mistakes. So it should be prefaced by saying that. And I made quite a few, but my biggest mistake easily I had in what used to be my right hand corner of the golfist, Walter Hagen's 1929 open championship and Ryder cup golf bag and the clubs he used to win the last major of his career. Uh, the 1929 open at Muirfield. And Looking back, I mean, I don't regret it. I, I think I've gotten over regret. Uh, I'm not one to have a lot of regrets in this life, but you know, it was it wasn't the smartest thing I've ever done. Would I like to have it now? Yes, for sure. But it happened, and I'm trying to remember the the moment where it happened. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember. We had a bill or something like that. Maybe there was a house repair that needed to be done. And, you know, we, you know, this is a time where, you know, I didn't make a ton of money. I had some money and it was going to be, you know, an issue. And I basically, you know, we were talking, I was talking to my wife and I said, listen, I've, I've got some stuff that I could probably sell to help us out. And that happened to be one of them and, you know, got out of it with any debt because we sold that, the bag and clubs. But I do think about it from time to time. I will say this in my defense, if there's anything to be almost indefensible, but there are times as a collector where, at least for me, where some of the things, no matter how great they are, become pieces of furniture. 
And my thought has always been, once something becomes ordinary and not extraordinary, it's time for somebody else to have it, whether that be a collector or a museum or what have you. So I, I can't believe I can, I, I'm saying this, but that was a, a period in time where I had had this amazing you know, golf bag and clubs that Hagen used to win the 29 open and play in the 29 Ryder cup at Moortown. And it became a piece of furniture. So oddly enough, I, I did reach out to um, Muirfield. I reached out to the U S Ryder cup team and Moortown at the time to see if they wanted to acquire it. And nobody ever uh, returned my email. So Unfortunately, I don't think they made, I don't think it's in their collection right now, but I, I would have loved it to be in the right spot. So anyway, that's probably my biggest mistake or regret if there is such a thing. Um, next question is Chris625. What is the best advice on winning an auction? I, I like this one a lot, by the way. And it, it comes down pretty simple. This is mine anyway. Have a plan. If it's a critical item for your collection, you really want to acquire my best advice, my very best advice is set your mind to one number. And you know, like, what is that number? For me, it's literally knowing in my mind the exact amount of money that I am willing to spend on any given item. That means I set a limit where I don't go a dollar higher. I won't go 50 cents higher. If it's over that amount, I am okay walking away. And I'll be honest with you. It's, it's a tough exercise because your mind will mess with you, right? Um, if that number exceeds the number you were looking to, like it clears the number. Let's say it's a hundred dollars and it's like hundred dollars and 50 cents. And like, you're like, it's just $1 more. I, I could go to 101 and I could still have it, but that's the discipline. And I think, I think that's how I get through it without having a lot of regret. Because I set a number and I don't deviate from it. That's my one number. A lot of times I'll wait until the end of the auction if it's going to be a close one. uh, And I'll wait it out and just bid, 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 bid. That's really difficult. I'm I'm not going to lie. Because when you do that, you're going to be tempted to go over that number. But again, it's... That's the only way you can find happiness in my in my mind. When you when it comes to chasing something, it's like, well, you know, I went to a hundred dollars. That's where I said I was going to be, and it went to hundred and one. And the only thing you can hope for this has happened to me many times is you reach that number, and then all you do is pray that it's not one hundred one. It doesn't end on one hundred one. Like if it ends at like two hundred one, you're like, oh my god, thank god. Like it was nowhere close to where I wanted to spend the money. But like ending on one hundred one, that's where the discipline really comes into play. I think that's where you've got to be like hard and fast. So, Dave Moore, the historian at Oakmont, asks, uh, what are your white whale pieces? Uh, what are the items that you long for but yet to have acquired? Now I mentioned two of them already. But Dave, I tell you, outside of you know a claret jug, it's probably an item that I can't even fathom at the moment. Like one of those items that pops up that you didn't even know existed or that would ever hit the market. Uh, I think a good example of something that will never hit the market, but would have my full attention. If you follow me long enough, you know, you know about my love of golf history, my love of golf art, golf course architecture, and my love of my club, which is Bel Air Country Club, the oldest golf club in the state of Florida, which was renovated in 1914 when he expanded 36 holes. And if some kind of miracle happened where I could acquire the actual blueprints of Bel Air by Donald Ross, that would be a white whale. Now I have, I'm literally, it's weird because it's right here on my desk. Um, I have, I think a 1920 copy of those plans of both courses. Um, I need to get it framed, uh, but that's as close as I think I'm ever going to get. I think they're in the collection of Pinehurst. I know the copies are, um, the blueprints are so never, it's never going to come about, but it'd be something like that. It's not necessarily that, but you know, I, I did have the chance to acquire, um, I believe it was William Flynn's plans for Shinnecock. And, if I remember right in the auction, I was the high bidder. It looked like I was going to win. And again, this is years ago. So my, my memory might be a little off, but I believe the 
auctioneer contacted me and said that Shinnecock really wanted the blueprints, would I have any problems letting them go to Shinnecock? And I withdrew my bid and let it go because that's where it should be. Uh, now, I don't know if that actually happened. Maybe he just kept them himself or whatever. <laughs> That'd be awesome. They're not at Shinnecock. But if they ended up on the walls of Shinnecock or in the collection of Shinnecock, that's I did a good thing. That's how I look at it. Let's see. We have another question. I don't have who sent it. Uh, how did I acquire the bronze bust of Bobby Jones, which was a major piece of my collection until two years ago, he mentions. Uh, where does it reside today? So I acquired the bronze bust of Bobby Jones. It's one of, I believe, 10 that were made. It was number one of 10. And if memory serves, I, I acquired it by what was Green Jacket Auctions, which is now Golden Age Auctions. Um, that bust is an item of a little bit contention in my family. Uh, weirdly, weird thing to note, nobody in my family cares probably two cents about anything or any of the items in the golf is. But when I took it to, when I took the bronze bust to Oakmont, they all freaked out. Uh, my youngest went so far to say that I had given away one of the kids. So, you know, I, I think they like the idea of looking into the golfers and seeing this, you know, life-size bust of Bobby Jones. They probably didn't even know it was Bobby Jones, to be fair. But it sits today within the amateur collection of Oakmont Country Club. And you can go see it. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't know this, but I'll let this be known. I believe once a month outside of COVID, uh, Oakmont is a nationally uh, historic landmark and gives tours of their, their facilities. So Google that, find out, get a tour of Oakmont. It's one of the amazing collections and clubhouses in this country. It's home to the U.S. Open, despite, I think, that moniker going to Pinehurst now. It's held, uh, I think, in 2025, will host its 10 U.S. Open, more U.S. Opens than any other club in the United States. And their collection has, and their archives is spectacular. Uh, let's see. Next question. How did I acquire the Marion Wicker Basket? Uh, this comes from Ballpark Blueprints. The Marion Wicker Basket that sits behind me here is one of the items within the golf that gets a lot of questions. You can't buy it from the club, and not many get out of Marion legally. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is I can assure you that uh, I know for a fact it was not stolen from Marion, and that leaves you with very few avenues for acquisition. One of them is obtaining one from a U.S. Open winner at Marion, and that's all I can say about that. So there's a little, leaving a little mystery there. Sorry. So I'm going to wrap up here in a little bit, but I will go through a couple of the things that one of the questions are: Can you name your favorite item from the golfers? And that's kind of like, what's your favorite kid at this point? I mean, like, I think there was a time where Bobby Jones's personal mashy niblick was my most prized antiquity in the golfers. And at another time, it was, you know, the grand match at St. Andrews, the golfers. So now I don't really have a favorite, I think, or maybe it rotates. I don't know, but I have what I call anchors. So I, if we, I got a little time here. I figured I'd go through some of the anchors of the golfers you may or may not get to see as you tour it with me on social media. I mentioned before, one of them is the one I'm staring at right now, which is Willie Park Sr.'s photogravure, the life-size image from the shoulders up of the four-time Open champion. I shared this story already about you know how it was a gift from Willie Park Jr. to his dad. I don't know. It's it's extremely important to me. Uh, I've had offers to acquire it from me for a lot of money, and I've always turned it down, never bat an eye. Most of all, because it's the first time open champion. It's that father-son connection of both being open champions. But I'm also a massive fan. I mean, like I started most of my collection just admiring and collecting the underdog story of Musabra. And I, I believe we have a podcast, The Stolen Major, that is all about Musabra. So I, let me think, let me look around real quick. I think it's probably, you know, the anchor of that collection, right? It's the one thing that kind of stands out from that collection that is, you know, amazing. So it's an anchor. Um, The other one that sits literally right behind my desk is Augusta National's original routing signed by Alistair McKenzie from 1931. 
And I acquired this from the grandson of Wendell Miller, who is the chief engineer and oversaw construction of Augusta National. I call this the treasure map. And as I mentioned before, it does not match the current course or doesn't match it perfectly. And it's dated July 1931. And why is that important? This is the drawing that Alistair McKenzie did while at Augusta National as he was looking over the Fruitland Nursery to build a golf course. This was made potentially at Augusta during that couple-day stay when he started routing the golf course. And it includes notations for where a new clubhouse is going to go. They're going to bulldoze the existing clubhouse and build a, you know, five pillar, six pillar, you know, Southern mansion, if you will, a state for clubhouse. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's probably one of the coolest things that I have because it predates Augusta national. These are pre-construction plans, if you will, for what would be, you know, one of the greatest golf courses on this planet and home to the masters. And, uh, when I acquired it this past year, I don't, it was like shock and awe. I, you know, you, I acquired a treasure map that just happened to be the treasure. The other one I think is really neat is um, the combination of paintings that are, that reside to its right. And that's the combination of the work of uh, Charles Lees. So Charles Lees, award-winning painter in the middle 1800s. And he was commissioned to paint um, the golfers. It's the grand match at St. Andrews. And it is... The Mona Lisa, many people call that the Mona Lisa of golf paintings. And it depicts this famous match at St. Andrews in 1847. And around the golfers in this painting are some of the most important people of that era in St. Andrews, including Alan Robertson. Um, And painted in 1847, this is an original print made of it in 1850. And this actual print was given to one of the subjects who sat for the painting. And it's spectacular. I mean, it's, I don't know how rare it is, uh, an 1850 uh, original print of the golfers. It's fairly rare. I'll just say that. And it is, if if you're going to have a golfist or an antiquity collection, there are plenty of ways to get a replica of the golfers. I highly suggest it. I think it's just a beautiful painting and it's one of the great antiquities of this game, specifically the original. Uh, the other one just above it is another Charles Lee's painting, which is maybe even more rare. And that is the 1859 painting called A Summer's Evening at Musabra Links. And A Summer's Evening at Musabra Links has a fascinating story. For years, it was lost um, or forgotten. To my knowledge, it was found in an attic somewhere in Scotland. And I'm going off the top of my head. So forgive me if I'm a little wrong on this. And it was so it was found to be so beautiful that they decided to make prints of it. So in 1914, it was shipped off to Germany, maybe it was 1913, shipped off to Germany to this famous printmaker to make prints of this beautiful painting. And World War One erupted. And the story went that during the printing of these fabulous prints, the factory where the prints were being made was bombed, and very few of these first edition prints were ever sent out. And this one happens to be one that was not hand-painted thereafter, so hopefully one of the early ones. But a great bit of history from you know, an accomplished painter. He only did a couple golf paintings in his entire lifetime, and both of them are masterpieces, and they cover two of the great golfing hubs of Scotland in St. Andrews and Musabra Links. So I love that story. I had to share it. I mentioned already the world, one of the world's oldest scorecards from June 3rd, 1820 at Leith Links. So I won't get into that, but that's definitely an anchor. Um, my John Smartwall is extremely important to me. It's to my right. Again, it was built upon the painting of In Pandy Play Two More at um, the Musabra Old Course Golf Club but it depicts all 20. It's a full collection of John Smart's prints, all hand-painted of the celebrated golf courses of the British Isles, and or of Scotland, I should say, to be specific. And they're staggeringly beautiful. One of the really cool things here about this, 
and I, I need to write an article about it one of these days, but one of the really cool things about this collection, again, painted between 1880s and uh, 1890s, is I believe, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe this was like the first ever visual representation of golf course architecture in and, and by itself ever to be published. Uh, John Smart made these for a book and these 20 photographs went out. And I think I don't know. Um, I think these are, it's definitely the first collection of courses that were painted for the sake of the golf course and the golf course architecture rather than the person in the painting. Right. So you'll see paintings like old Tom Morris or, you know, any famous golfer really. And in the background will be a golf course. But in this case, there are golfers in the painting, but outside of maybe old Tom Morris in the hell bunker painting, they're not notable figures. They're just golfers that are really there for probably scale as much as anything. So, I mean, Prestwick is in here. I mean, Hell Bunker is one of the most favorite ones. I, I've, or Hell Bunker is probably the most recognizable because it's probably the greatest image of Hell Bunker in the history of the game of golf, in my opinion. But then there's some like really cool ones. I've mentioned this before. Lenark, for instance. You can literally date the Lenark one to an actual year because the militia had set up camp at Lenark to the you know, enough to upset the membership. But in this painting, you can actually see the military tents in the background. And then, um, oh gosh, what is it called? It's the Glasgow painting, Alexandra Park. So I'm sorry about the long pause, but I had had to had to get to my brain. Alexandra Park, I love. It's a extinct golf course. It's now a park, not a golf course. And in the Alexandra Park, you can see, you know, this this rise of the the new conquering the old. And what I mean by that is it's one of the few paintings where it has modern civilization, you know, interrupting our game of golf, which is, you know, dates back to the 1400s. And what I mean by that is you can actually see smokestacks of industry in the background polluting, like literally like dark clouds of soot and just going all the way across this painting. And, I don't know why. I think I love it because it's not in and in itself. It's not a staggeringly beautiful image because it's more about the industry than it is the golf. It's not a, a, you know one of the great holes of Alexandra Park. It's just this microcosm of the new invaded the old, and that I love about it so much. So, if you can look look it up right now, Google John Smart's paintings. Um, you know name a golf course in Scotland, you'll probably find it. And they are beautiful. They're like um, Musselboro, of course, I've mentioned, but Presswick, uh, North Barracks, a beautiful painting that shows the seaside. Yeah. Anyway, one of my favorites. I dove into uh, Bobby Jones's personal mashing niblick. Uh, one of the latest uh, acquisitions is an original membership certificate to the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers that's printed on animal skin. And it was handed to the member in 1784 by James Balfour, who is like one of the most important golfers in the history of the game. He was the secretary of the club at the time. Now to put this in perspective, how cool this is here in the States, 1784, when this certificate was issued, George Washington had yet to become president in January of that year, marked the end of the revolutionary war in England's agreement that we were an independent country. Like that's the same year this, this went out. Napoleon, for instance, was in military school. Mozart was in his mid twenties. And this was 76 years before the first open championship was played. So there's just so much history in that certificate from probably the most important club in the history of time, uh, from a golf sense, uh, the honorable company of Edinburgh golfers have done so much for this game of golf um, quite frankly, you know, had they stayed on their game and almost gone, not gone bankrupt, they probably would be what the RNA is to us today. And then, as I mentioned, I won't go into great detail, John Smart's Golfing Landscapes, the art collection. And before I end, I'll just hit a couple others. I, I don't know if this has been a great podcast for you to listen to. And if it hasn't been, I'm so sorry. But um, other items of interest that you may be intrigued by. 
Uh, in the far left corner, we have my original gutty set from Musabra. So again, being a lover of all things Musabra, I built a set that I played that consists of clubs, uh, wooden clubs by McEwen, a long nose putter by Willie Park. Then we have all the irons are made by Carrick, which were made between 1870 and 1880. So very cool. I have two clubs that were made by Willie Park Sr. I have what would have been an anchor in my collection probably a decade ago, a a putter made by Hugh Philp. And Hugh Philp was the Stradivarius of club makers. Like his clubs to this day are extremely rare and extremely valuable. And it took me 20 years to find one. And I acquired it in the last couple years. It's a putter, which also means that I could literally take it out to the golf course and roll a ball. Um, So it's, it was a really cool and satisfying acquisition to put a bookend on that part of my collection. I have another weird artifact in the corner. If you ever visit the golf is, is I have Willie Park Sr.'s 1870 putter that's made out of solid silver. Uh, a trophy club, I think it weighs 50 pounds of silver or something crazy like that. So kind of a cool little artifact that I don't mention too much on social media. I have a, also have a massive oil painting that which many of you have seen of Lido's Ocean Hole. Um, I also have a massive print on canvas. I mean, it's four feet by three feet of the original 1932 routing of Augusta National Golf Club. Now, this is a modern uh, printing of it versus the one that's behind my head. A match set of Tom Stewart RTJ irons. And finally, I'll just leave you with this. I have a collection of four Delft tiles from Holland that came from the PGA of America collection of the game Colvin, which many believe, as do I, is the game that preceded the game of golf and eventually evolved into the game of golf in Scotland. So, well, anyway, I hope that didn't bore you too much. That is a tour of the golfers. I didn't hit all of the items, but I think I hit some of the major items in the collection and perhaps where it will grow to. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I, uh, if not, I sincerely apologize. It was someone on Twitter's idea, so we can blame them. We can track them down and blame them for this silly episode. But uh, thank you for spending time listening to me talk about the golfers. I hope it wasn't boring. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>